This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Professor Troy Swanson from Moraine Valley Community College, and he's also an adjunct faculty member at Dominican University. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com support. Troy, welcome back to the show. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me back. Um, you've been on quite a bit um, as a guest host <laughs> over the last couple of years, <laughs> um, but it's been quite a while. I didn't check back um, how far, but it's been quite a while since you were on as a guest. <laughs> I think you were on twice before. Yeah. Um, and I think I through all those, I went back and looked a little bit, and um, I don't think I ever asked you the question that I ask most people, which is, how did you come to the library field in the first place? <laughs> the classic question. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm honored to be asked. Uh, yeah. It's kind of a funny story. Um, actually it's, it's because, you know, it's kind of like those moments in life that um, come at you that you don't expect. Um, I, partly because I took an early student orientation date and all of the jobs on campus were open when I was, when I was an undergrad. And so I could work in food service or I could work in the library. And um, I went to Augustana college in Rock Island, Illinois, and they had they have a very beautiful uh, library with an amazing staff, and they still do to this day. That This has been, you know, geez, 25 years ago, I hate to say, uh, when I was there. Um, and I chose to work in the library, and I had delusions of law school all the way through undergrad up until my junior year. It kind of hit me that I really liked studying the law, but I really didn't want to do it. <laughs> and uh, I, had a, I had this, like, moment of, what am I going to do? And I was a history major. Like, you know, there's a lot of uh, people that go to library school that – have those humanities degrees <laughs> and I was like what do I do with this with this major and I realized wow I work with these you know amazing people that do good work in this intellectual environment and um, I, I think still to this day I hold up that library as kind of um, my ideal for what I'd like my library to be they did such a great job and that was it like that's how I went but you know who knows maybe if I went into food service I'd be some kind of chef or something I don't know my history <laughs> major um, but uh, that's, that was the moment. And I think it was a good pairing of the, of the undergrad writing and research I had done. I spent a lot of time in the library and I, I just kind of, it clicked with me about how it worked and the value that it brought to me. So, um, yeah, but I was think back, I, I was like the first orientation that, you know, the early bird gets the worm, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> I worked in, in the library. So that was it. Yeah, my, my, mine was the stumbling into it because, um, there was a job on campus where my wife was going to grad school and I wanted to go be somewhere where I could have lunch with her sometimes. <laughs> so <Right>. just, <laughs> it worked out. Yeah. I and mean, that's the stories for many of us, right? It's not the job that's up on the billboard that you drive by, but the job <laughs> that you kind of notice and say, this is a pretty good gig. This is, this, these are good people. So that's, that's what brought me. Well, um, in, I should say for posterity, we're recording this in June of 2020 and we're in the middle of a pandemic um, and that's changed a lot of our work. Um, can you talk a little bit about how um, Moraine Valley has changed or is planning to change to adapt to um, COVID? Uh, yeah, I, and I can talk on, you know, about the library and the college in general. I don't know if, if you're specific on which you care about, um, but I mean, I think I don't, you know, obviously we're not facing anything that anyone else around the whole world um, is facing. And I don't know if our solutions are really um, any better or different than where everyone else is. But 
Um, I've been on the our return to work committee, uh, and that's been a lot of it's a lot of pressure, and we've been reading everything we can get our hands on to try to understand um, what best to do. Um, so for the fall of 2020, we've decided as a college um, to remain um, almost totally online for the whole fall semester. Um, there's a handful of programs that really struggle to to teach all everything they do online. So um, we may have a few sections of classes on campus, and so our goal is to have the least amount of people on campus as possible um, to protect those that have to be there. Uh, and, you know, Illinois has been, especially we're in Cook County, um, just we border the city of Chicago. So we are, are sort of one of the hot spots of the, of the country, um, or have been at least. And so it's been pretty strict on our state reopening plan right now. We're at a point where there's no gatherings of, that can be over 10 people. Um, and so we're not sure where we'll be in the fall. Illinois has a five-stage process. Um, the next stage allows gatherings of 50 people. So um, that will impact how campus looks. Um, as for our library, right now we've been working remotely since um, since our spring break around March 12th. Um, we are doing curbside pickup like like many people. We're, we're um, becoming experts in Canvas. Um, you know, for our, our, we do a lot of information literacy instruction, mostly um, composition courses, speech classes, um, intro psych, those kind of things. Um, normally we do in the fall semester, um, you know, 300 to 400 sections um, at, in a semester. Uh, so we're, we're very busy and we're getting ready to figure out, you know, we're figuring out how do we transition that um, to the online world. And it's, uh, you know, really taking a very kind of smorgasbord approach. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a technical term or not, but, you know, we're, we're looking at some, some like, you know, how do we participate in discussion boards? How do we do live, you know, live video, like Zoom calls? Um, some things we're replicating with um, pre-recorded videos with um, like Google Docs that we would send along. And so I think we're, we're really not trying to limit ourselves in terms of like, this is the one way we do instruction for our students. And we're trying to say to our faculty, what, what works best for you? You know, we have a lot of faculty members that they're, you know, they're not expert um, online teachers. I, I, I mean, I don't mean to say that in a bad way, but just that they generally don't do it. And so now everyone is doing it and getting thrown thrown into the fire and having to figure out how does their course look online. And so one thing that our faculty definitely do not need is librarians making things complicated. So <laughs> our approach in general always is to try to make the lives of our faculty members um, easier. And, and I mean, of course, the goal is to get to student learning, but, you know, we we're not an obstacle um, in that process. We want to move things forward. So I think that's the approach. We're trying to take and right now we're not sure what our physical space is going to look like for fall so we have um a document of you know multiple contingency plans depending on where uh the state of illinois is uh by that time so it's 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 a it's an it's a interesting process and you know at some point you can you have to stop your planning because you can over plan because you just don't know what it's going to look like and it's wasted time but on the other hand you have to be ready and um ready to jump in and act and i, I don't think i'm saying anything that if if there's librarians listening to this, I think everyone is probably um, in the same boat. Um, do, do you, does the library kind of see itself as somebody who can help the faculty um, transition to that stuff? I mean, is that something that you can help teach the faculty of how to do digital learning? Um, we do some. I mean, we're definitely a partner. And in terms of the tools we offer, you know, absolutely. Uh, we have a Center for Teaching and Learning on our campus, and that's really their specialty. They have okay. instructional designers. and not. I mean, we have, like, we have a distance education um, library, and that's his main focus. And he, he essentially has an instructional design background. And like all of us, you know, you can't be an academic librarian that does um, that does teaching without doing some instructional design. So 
I think all of us have some expertise on that, but it's it's not our our strict focus. But we we fill in a lot of gaps. You know, we're we're like we are we're open seven days a week right now, virtually chat room, phone, and so we field you know a lot of calls that and a lot of chats that are not you know reference questions, right? And I think that's true for probably all libraries. But you know, how do I get to advising? Um, I need to get my textbooks. What's the the rules for the bookstore? And so we're, we have a, a Slack channel for our library where we're, we always are trying to capture current practice and to be ready to answer, you know, whatever question comes our way. So I also wanted to um, talk with you about some um, research you've been doing um, into uh, like neuroscience and how it relates to information literacy. And the first thing I wanted to ask was kind of how did you, what made you want to get into that in the first place? What, what um, interested you in that topic? I mean, I think it really goes back way back uh, to when I entered library school. And let me say, you know, I've been dabbling with some of the neuroscience literature, some of the psychology literature, and I, you know, you always run the risk of not being the expert and trying to walk into other people's discussions, right? So right. Um, anything that I might bring up here, I think any listener should, you know, make sure you're a good information literate librarian and um, do your own research for sure, right? Take with a great assault, but you know, so I entered library school the first year, Google did not exist. The second year, Google was everywhere. <laughs> and so, I mean, I feel like there's, I in some ways always carry with, and maybe all of us from that generation carry with that kind of existential crisis of, of you know, what's, will libraries exist in the future and how do we solve that question, right? And it, it seemed to me at the time, and, um, and I think still is true, that, you know, there was a, we, we provided a certain level of quality and trust in the, in the information. And that's partly our role as gatekeeper, spending money on stuff, especially in, you know, academic libraries that are looking at, um, you know, research with a research kind of focus. Um, and then that led me to the next step then is, is why? So why do I think this information that we're buying has a higher level of authority or credibility? And, and then the next step after that was, if I think that, why should my students think that? And obviously, you know, we all know there's great things on Google. There's great things that are now um, open access. So I don't want to just minimize that, you know, you got to go to, you know, a library database and that's the only good stuff. That's not really what I'm saying, right. but just that it became apparent, right? That in the past when I was an undergrad, so sound like an old guy here, but you know, you could go to your, your academic library, pull, you know, five books off the shelf and you had a pretty good research paper going because someone had picked those books for you. And, uh, you, you know, go down and get some journal articles out of the, you know, in the depths of the library and, and you got a paper to write. Where now, you know, I remember writing my very first paper in like probably 1998 or 1999 where I never went in the library. So I'd written many papers before that, but I recognized I just wrote this paper using Google and library databases and I never had to walk in the physical library. And, I, and now, I mean, our students don't even recognize that that's a thing. Like that's just normal, normal for all of us. But that was a kind of a big lightning bolt for me. And, and so that got me down the path. What is credibility? What is authority? Um, why do we trust some sources other that, uh, over other sources? That's the thing I've been working on um, for a long time. And most recently, I was invited to give a talk um, by um, the excellent librarians at the University of New Mexico um, in their libraries. And Lori Townsend is a friend of mine there. And, um, you know, we were t the talk was really like about climate change was the framing um, topic. And like, how would you address topics? Why do some people trust climate science and why do other people not? 
And that really sparked a new interest for me. And that was a couple of years ago. And I've really been trying to do, I've been, I've been diving deep into, um, into this research, trying to understand how does our brain interact with information. And my, my, my real goal is to challenge us in terms of information literacy to think about like, how does identity, how does the self walk into that conversation? I think sometimes when we teach um, students to do research, we still teach it from this very rationalistic, almost kind of sanitized, you know, our brain is a computer model of learning where if, if all of us have the right information, we are all going to come out to the right answer. And I think um, if anything from the 2016 election, the, the discussions of fake news, I know it's, it's very apparent that we do not live in that, in that world. And that's sort of, you know, connected in with why I've, you know, been a guest host on this podcast. I've been interviewing people um, that have helped me think about some of these topics. So it, that's, that's a long blathering answer, but. Well, I, I, I think it goes back. I mean, I, I know you've been thinking about this for years because when you were first on the show talking about the book you wrote with um, Heather Jagman, um, not just yes. where to click. That's what that book was about too, was thinking about how do you think <laughs> about information. Um, I, but I do think it's interesting now that you've added in the, um, uh, I guess the neuroscience part of it, the un understanding how the brain actually works part of it. That's re that's a really interesting part of that. Yeah, and I, and I don't know if I have that doubt yet, that's for sure. But there's been so many advances with, especially with like fMRI technology, where the neuroscientists are able to see how the brain activates. And um, I, I mean, I think in the next, you know, decades, we're going to, it's going to even, things that we're reading now and thinking now are going to greatly move forward, right? So um, it, it's it's changing quickly, but even, you know, assumptions that we carried around for a long time um, are, are becoming more nuanced and complex. And I, and I think in terms of just education in general, but definitely in libraries and as, as a social science, I think there's some of that that we really need to pull in. If, if we are the information experts, as we say, understanding how the brain processes that information seems to me a kind of important um, piece in what we do. So and as part of that, I know you've um, talked about and written about how critical thinking works. And I know that's a big thing um, that we like to think that, that, again, that thing of a word, the brain is a machine that we just make do this, that if you have... Um, evidence and you put logic to it, then all of a sudden you've got the answer, but there's much more right. to it than that. Yeah. It, the, the term critical thinking is a term that I sort of hate and because it's used <laughs> in so many different ways and everybody thinks they think they teach critical thinking. And um, I'm not sure that we often do. And, and I, and again, I don't know if I have it quite right, but one thing that, that the, the um, research is showing, right. Is that, that, like you said, that old, that old kind of formula, you have a claim, you have an idea. You throw some evidence with that claim, you sprinkle on some logic, and then you have critical thinking. You come out with that outcome. It's it's a very um, kind of enlightenment grounded way of thinking about the world, that if we all just have the same knowledge, we're going to come out with the same answer. And, I, and it's way, um, it, it's more complicated than that, right? And so in, it, in, it's, in healthy it's, brains- it's very, I wanna... it's very Vulcan, so- <laughs> Right. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> the, the, uh, our ideal, um, Mr. Spock, um, the, in one thing I want to say is when I talk about this, I do want to make kind of a asterisk, you know, um, in general, I'm talking about like normative brains, healthy brains or whatever that means. And I know there's a lot, there's a whole lot of different kinds of brains. And so I, I but I'm not talking about anyone that, that, uh, maybe is on, um, either on like the, on the autistic spectrum or anything like that. So I don't want to these are very general sweeping claims. So I want to just kind of put that disclaimer out there from the beginning. 
Um, but you know, the, the, a key thing that, that healthy brains can do is to hold multiple ideas of reality in our brain, but recognize what is the current reality. So there are people that have trouble with that and they, they get lost and not, aren't clear on what's, what's currently around me, what isn't, right? But in healthy brains, I can imagine a thing that doesn't exist and then come back to reality. And there, there's a kind of ability to be self-aware and step outside of what is happening to me. And it takes practice and it's a skill and it, it, it starts very young. And the more that you practice at it, the better um, you get. But to me, that is hints at what we should be thinking about in terms of critical thinking is the ability to say, here's my world. I want to step outside of that world and imagine what another world might look like. How might someone see things differently than what I see? Um, the ability to reframe claims that we might, might make, ref, ref, reframe knowledge claims and, and kind of circle around it, but also hold in mind where our reality is, what our worldview might be, how we see the way the world works. And I, to me, and I, again, I don't have the exact way, you know, how this should work or how we should teach this, but this is the kind of thing that we should be teaching in terms of, of um, critical thinking, that it, it's sort of an imagination exercise and trying to get to, it's not just like, if I just have the right logic, I have the right answer, but it's something that's way more complex and way more complicated than that. And it's, it's holding multiple ideas that can disagree with each other in, in your mind at the same time and trying to get to those ideas. And sometimes we get so ground into our own belief systems that we don't want to even engage with the ideas that disagree with our current worldview, right? We, we need to get to those ideas that disagree and let those ideas work together and try to find the validity and the understanding that comes with those. Well, and, and, that, and that's sort of tied into what you talked about a little bit earlier about with expertise is not quite what we thought either because that's sort of like we used to think before that this person knows everything about this and so they are it's the expertise but there's more the brain is different than that it's more there's like yeah. an intuition that's that's part of that right i mean i think i mean i think one thing that i would say about expertise is that generally you know we may think of experts as people that know stuff which is not so bad right people that have spent a lot of time um going deep down into a topic but what comes with that is kind of a a kind of intuition training if you're an expert, right? That's what a true expert is. That's, that's like my thing with me talking about neuroscience or me talking about psychology is I'm not an expert. Um, I'm, a, I'm a dabbler. And so as someone who has really spent, you know, decades deeply enmeshed into a discipline has a kind of, of cognitive reflex, a kind of, of recognition of right and wrong, a gut feeling, right? That just like this doesn't mesh with my understanding of how the world works. And, and sometimes that's wrong. Like sometimes our understandings, the schemas we build about the world, sometimes those aren't accurate and then we have to fix them. And so it doesn't mean that, that experts are, are always right and that we don't need to, that we should, shouldn't disagree with experts at times, right? But it also means that it's more than just knowing stuff. It's being deeply involved and in, in, in submerged and having a kind of intuitive grasp of knowledge and recognizing where you're weak in terms of knowledge, where you're strong in terms of knowledge, and just building feelings in a topic that can push you in new directions and new recognition. And I think that's what really most interests me is those kind of, of gut gut instincts. So you know, one thing I do with students when we, we talk about some of this is I, I have um, two library pens. You know, every library has their pens and we're, we're no different in, on our campus. So we have pens, you know, with our library website. And we have multiple colors. So I hold up two pens, you know, like a green pen and a, a red pen or a blue pen or whatever. It doesn't really matter. And I ask them to decide what pen would you choose? 
and everyone can choose a pen. Now there's no, there's no logic, right? There's no rational reason that you could choose that pen. It's just a preference. I like green or I like red or I like blue, whatever, whatever it happens to be. They write the same, they're, they're made by the same company. They, they do the same function, but all of us, and, and again, all of us is in healthy folks, right? All of us um, are able to make that choice. And if we didn't, like I would be in my closet all morning trying to figure out what shirt I should wear to work during, I mean, you know, during normal life. Uh, you know, you, you, we need to, as a species, as functioning individuals, make decisions and make decisions that are largely meaningless, but help us move forward in our day. And I think that a lot of the, the decisions we make that use information are much more similar to choosing between the two pens than it is, you know, than, than um, the Socratic method, you know, or, or, or the, or the formal critical thinking skills. Most of our, our decisions come from this idea in psychology called the feeling of rightness. It just feels right to us. This is just a thing that, that, that just meshes with how we see the world working. Sometimes it's, there is logic and rationality involved in that. Sometimes um, there's not. Sometimes it's just um, bias. Sometimes it's heuristics that we use to take shortcuts to make decisions. But there's a lot more gut decisions. And so, so we need to check that sometimes and try to understand why am I making this decision. Um, but ultimately, we've got to push forward in, into our lives and we can't make a, you know, a, a, um, a whole rational um, pro con argument on why I'm going to wear the blue shirt today and not the green shirt today. Um, we have to live our lives. And, and so, I, but I think we need to recognize that, that often we treat our brains as these, you know, um, like computers that we carry around in our heads that are making rational decisions that we're, we're recording the world around us and we make logical decisions. That's not at all um, what the neuroscience or psychologists, you know, what they're telling us about how our decision-making actually works. So a lot of this, I think, um, what we're talking about of with bias and misinformation and error and um, fake news, whatever in your brain that um, you're looking to, I know you talked about um, seeking a narrative, <laughs> like that, that that's kind of what our brains want is to have a logical thing, even though it's not acting logically. But um in particular, the, the thing that's going on now other than COVID is a big, much-needed discussion about race, racism, anti-racism um, in our society right now. And so I think a big part of that is recognizing um, that you have these biases and compensating for that. Yes, absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I want to be obviously, you know, cautious um, in the discussions of of um, race and racism in terms of some of this for sure, because this is really not my area. And there's people that you should be listening to that are not me in terms of, of how to, you know, really be anti-racist and how to work. But I, I mean, I think a thing that I think is safe to say for all of us is that there's, there's dispositions in our minds that, that push us in certain directions. And a key disposition that we all face is a disposition toward knowledge resistance, that it's hard to change our minds and that we build a world of schemas based on experience, that based on memory. And then, so, I mean, it's, so schema is a term that psychologists use. Maybe our listener, your listeners will know this. Um, if you've taken some like educational psychology or just, you know, intro to psych, you may touch on some of these ideas, right? But that the schemas are kind of like our generalized way that we understand the world works. And they generally are built by experiences and memories that we hold. And so those things come together and that makes kind of the rules on how we see the world works. And 
it's hard to change those. And, and sometimes for good reason, right? Like you don't want to always be just thrown asunder or we would never, you know, our species wouldn't evolve over hundreds of thousands of years to, to, to still exist if, if we were always kind of rethinking these schemas. So those schemas get ground in and they're socially built and they're connected in our worldview and our identities and the lives around us. So changing those um, are, they're very difficult and they take kind of monumental eye-opening moments. And I think, um, you know, the, the, the issues that we're facing with uh, police brutality, um, the, the, the deaths that we've seen that have been broadcast through social media. I mean, I think those are the kind of, of moments that cause people to rethink those schemas. And, I, and that's probably all I should say about <laughs> down that path. I don't, I don't feel like that's where, where I want to be in terms of like my expertise, but just to say, that we build worldview and identity around that and we need to find ways to reflect on it and recognize it and then um, to think about how we might change it, right? And I, I'm always very interested in the idea of memory that leads to these schemas because I think, mm-hmm. um, again, in terms of like information literacy and in terms of what we do in libraries, I don't know if we think about that very much, but we, it's easy with, with our recording capabilities to think of our memories as just another thing that records the world around us. And in, in, um, the, the evolutionary psychologists have a very different view of how memory works and what memory is all about. Um, for, for them, and this is a, a big generalization, there's always a lot of nuance and debate across the, a field, right? But in general, you know, memory in an evolutionary standpoint is not about capturing things that happened in the past. Memory is, a, is an idea that's about the future. We, the reason that memory is valuable to our species is that it prepares us for things that might happen to us down the road. And memory is highly socially charged. So if you have um, a bad interaction with the family member, let's just, let's say maybe, you know, I, I call my mom and we, we get in a fight. I get in a fight with my mom. I don't know. That, that doesn't really happen very often, but let's pretend. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, not re- I can't recall, you know, if I, uh, two years from now, I won't be able to recall exactly word for word what happened. But I can definitely tell you, we'll be able to tell you if the exchange was positive or negative, if my, my standing with that person is something I should be worried about. Um, you know, you can think about people that if, if you've been fired from a job or you've left a job over bad circumstances, you're not going to remember every single detail, but you're going to have strong feelings about that place and the people that had worked with you previously. Um, you know, those charged social relationships are really ingrained in memory and the the thing with it then is that it also can memories shift as those relationships shift those old memories get rewritten where "Ah, it doesn't seem as bad you know i was so angry at that time but now it's not such a big deal um, because some time has passed right and and that's that is useful for us because if we we don't hang on to that supercharged negative emotion it lets us move beyond it and and move forward down the road um, but those memories, those experiences are the things that build the generalized schemas for how things work. So when a new experience happened that either goes against that schema or cause us to question the schema, then that schema has to adjust and our worldview has to shift. And I think that's interesting because like when we read a, a new piece of information, the information that we're coming across in our libraries or even in a novel or in, in, um, you know, in the classroom, those are coming in contact with these understandings that our students carry with us or our patrons carry with us. And we are working, we may not know it, but when we're working with them and we're, we're, we're helping them explore new ideas, we're actually helping them interact with these kind of things they hold in their head for how the world works. And I, again, I don't have all the answers on how that changes, but I think 
understanding some of these underlying um, you know, principles that are coming out of um, some of the other work that's being done out there, I think is important for us as librarians. Yeah, one of the things I think is fun when I'm thinking about this kind of stuff, neuroscience and how our brains work, is trying to think of how, like, why did our brain evolve this way in the first place? Like, we're kind of, I feel like we're always trying to catch up and figure out, like, you know, like pattern recognition is so you can see the tiger in the in the, in the grass next to you. Right. But we've had what we right. turned yep. that, but we yep. do that now in society now, and it's just, um, it's like, what? So what? Like, but was this all this in, was bias? I guess, good for us at one point. <laughs> and now it just doesn't work with yeah. society. Yeah. The evolutionary psychologists have, you know, um, a very different view of how our brain works. And, you know, one thing that I think if, if you go into any, a great example is a thing that I call the paradox of confirmation bias. And so if you go to any, you know, psych database and look up confirmation bias, and, you know, I, I think all of us know, but just in case, you know, confirmation bias is the tendency for us to emphasize information or cling on to information that that re, that confirms our existing beliefs, so that way we don't change our mind. We ignore things that disagree. We, you know, go after things that agree with us. But so that way, our current beliefs are strengthened. And if you look look that up, there's literally tens of thousands of articles over the last fifty years um, on confirmation bias, and you know, all of them or most of them explore the dysfunction that that causes, like why confirmation bias is a problem. And so to me, that was, there was like a paradox. And the, the paradox is like, how can we evolve with such a, a, a dysfunctional mind? <laughs> like, are, are our minds broken? And if so, how can humans be on every continent of the earth? And, you know, essentially, you know, we've become the, the mammal version of the cockroach. We've, <laughs> we've survived outside of our environments um, super very successfully to the point where we're threatening the planet, right? So why does this happen? And the, the, the best answer I've been able to find are from um, two um, psychologists who are sort of my, my psychology idols, um, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber in their book, Enigma of Reason. And they, they have an answer and they, their answer is that confirmation bias is, is part of our evolutionary thinking and it's part of how reason has evolved. And so they argue that most of our decisions that we make are these, that, that the thing I talked about earlier, that feeling of rightness, most of our most of our decisions that we make are intuitive um, kind of guesses. Does this feel right to me? And that's okay because in an evolutionary standpoint, we evolved in very close-knit groups of people. This kind of tribal existence where the bonds of family and the bonds of survival are the things that have kept, kept us alive. And they were stronger than these kind of you know, reasoning kind of debates that we might have today. And so you are in this safe environment where you rely on people to live, where you could put out reasons. And the goal was as a group, we reason socially. Our reasoning doesn't happen in, at an individual level. Reasoning happens within a group. And so you are in a safe area, a safe environment to throw out reasons. And the thing that the group needed was a lot of reasons, a lot of good efforts at trying to find the right answer. And then the group could pick from the best answer. And that tends to be why we're really bad at judging our own reasons. So, you know, <laughs> the thing we're really bad at is knowing if we're right or wrong because we're so biased in so many ways. But the thing that we're actually really good at is judging the reasoning of other people. It, you can tell, like, all, none of us like to be, you know, none of us like to be BS'd. And, and a lot of us, most of us have pretty good meters when try, when someone's trying to pull a con on us, right? And and you can you can tell, like, people are, are trying to, to fool you and we're guarded against that. 
And it, it's, it's an irony that we're good at judging others, but we're not good at judging ourselves. And, and their argument is this is an evolutionary leftover, that we reason in groups and the best reasoning comes between trusted people where there's a diversity of ideas, where we have a whole lot of ideas and the group works to find the best, the best solution. And, you know, in theory, that's how, you know, um, representative democracy should work too. But we, we've, we've gone to a point where we, we don't live in close-knit groups. We, we interact with people where we have loose bonds. We don't have deep bonds with them. We don't live in just strict family units anymore. And so the, the leftover reasoning infrastructure that's come with, and I should say leftover, the, the evolutionarily built over hundreds of thousands of years reasoning infrastructure that's, that is our mind isn't built for Facebook arguments. It isn't <laughs> built for Twitter debates, right? It isn't built for the kind of society that, that we live in. Or if it is, we're still trying to figure out how we're going to evolve and how we're going to compensate and, and to make it work. Or I think we're going to be, uh, or we are in, in trouble in the kind of polarized world um, that we live in. But I think that's an interesting thing with, with um, think, the evolutionary thinking, right? Is that we, we have this, these kind of this paradox of how, of how we think. The famous um, you know, biologist E.O. Wilson, who looks at social um, evolution and, um, in animals, um, he's mm -hmm. most famous for ants, but he's, he's, he's looked at how that translates to humans. You know, he, he says that his argument is that human nature is the, the fight between in-group social pressures and out-group social pressures. That's how the mind has worked. We've, we've, worked to, we've, we've evolved in... Um, close groups where we, we are good at negotiating, we're good at building alliances, we're good at sometimes going behind those alliances, and we have the tendency to push back against groups that are different from us. And um, that's, that's built into us, those tensions of in-group and out-group, and that's pushed how we think, how we reason, how we see ourselves, and how we build um, our worldview. And uh, it's super interesting, that social side. Um, there's this great quote from... Um, social psychologist uh, William Von Hippel in his, his book from 2018 called The Social Leap. That's another great book that, that everyone should check out. Um, it, it, the quote goes like this. I, I brought it with because I, I think it's so great. He says, we're the, we're the fiercest predator on the planet by virtue of the power of our minds. But even human minds aren't that special on their own. If you drop one of us naked alone into the wilderness, you've just fed the creatures of the local ecosystem. But if you drop a hundred of us naked into the wilderness, you've introduced the new top predator to this unfortunate stretch of woods. So our real evolutionary advantage is the social coordination that we can do to work together, to dominate the landscape and to solve problems. Um, and we do it like no other, no other species. Well, and one of the ways we do that, I think, leads into a chapter that you recently wrote um, for a book called um, Libraries Promoting Reflective Dialogue in a Time of Political Polarization. And I think that... Um, uh, kind of ties up a, a lot of what we've been talking about here is of you want to have this reflective dialogue to um, recognize your biases, recognize what's going on, use that group thinking that you were just talking about. Um, but you have to have that dialogue to do that. So um, what is the chapter that you wrote uh, about in that book? Yes. And I should give a shout out. I was a co-author um, librarian, uh, Chris Sweet and um, Jeremy Shermack, who is a, uh, uh, media studies, uh, journalism uh, uh, researchers, they were my co-authors. And so, you know, we were trying to look at um, the, the, whole the whole point of the book is think about what libraries can do in terms of political polarization. And we were really focused on information literacy 
um, in terms of college students. And uh, we, we had you know, some discussion of the psychology and neuroscience, um, some, some discussion on what's happening within the media landscape and how we might um, bring that together. And I, again, I don't have all the answers, but I think there's a few things that, um, that really stand out. And, and this is you know, the, the, the key idea that I think we have to get to is how do we, and this is like, how do we teach in the classroom, but also just how do we as individuals um, act reflectively? How are we reflective on our worldview? How do we recognize our own biases? How do we teach people to see that? And then how do we look, try to get to people who are different from us um, to go deeper uh, in, and to expand how we, how we see the world? Um, a lot of areas of librarianship, especially around information literacy, um, like the one that comes to my mind is the work that's being done in um, critical pedagogy, critical information literacy. Uh, there's a lot of people coming to the, the idea of reflection and being reflective and to understand how we're, why we're doing what we're doing and how we're getting there. And I, I think that's such a powerful tool with um, students that when you interact with information, you know, it's, it's like, it almost goes back to communication theory, right? The receiver brings as much to the table as the sender of the signal. And so when you interact with the information source, it's not just that your mind is empty and that information source is filling up the empty vessel. You're showing up with um, a, an understanding of how the world works and your in understanding sometimes can get in the way of getting to better solutions, of making the right decisions. And you have to understand how to get around that. That I, Again, rethinking what critical thinking looks like. How do you um, adjust for your own weaknesses in thinking and, and find information sources that are diverse that um, can help you see the world in, in new ways? So um, I think that is the challenge that we all face today in our polarized debates that we tend to have. And if you want to read more about that and other essays by other people, um, you can get that book. Uh, I think that was published by ALA. Is that right? Yes, it's ACRL. Uh, um, ACRL. Yep. Okay. And uh, I can send you, there's a, there's a version online of our, for our chapter. I can send you that to link up. Okay. Sounds good. Um, well, Troy, thank you so much for coming on the show today and um, for all of the guest hosting you've done over the years and hopefully more to come. <laughs> Yes. Well, and let me just say, Steve, I, I do think that this podcast is a public good for our profession. So um, thank you for the time that you put in and the ability that you've let me have um, to explore some of these ideas. But um, I enjoy everyone that you talk to. And um, I think I hope more librarians are connecting with you through this podcast. Uh, it's it, you really provide a service to all of us. Well, if people want to. Um, I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> um, if if um, people wanted to get in touch with you to follow up on these ideas, what's the best way to do that? Um, the best way is, I mean, you can Google me. I think my email address is out there, but follow me, uh, connect with me on Twitter. Um, T underscore Swanson is my handle. And uh, my email address is just Swanson, um, S-W-A-N-S-O-N, at morainevalley.edu. And I'm happy, happy to be in touch. All right. Well, thank you so much, Troy. Okay. Thanks. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Klicka and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas.